0: This is episode number 705 with Pharaoh Sheikh, Jeremy Greticky, and Thomas Young of Syngenta. Today's episode is brought to you by AWS Cloud Computing Services and by Modelbit for deploying models in seconds. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we've got another special one for you. This time, it's the first ever episode with not one, not two, but three guests. All three guests hail from Syngenta, one of the world's largest agricultural companies. Based out of Switzerland, Syngenta Group has over 50,000 employees and whopping revenue of over $30 billion annually. We've got them on the show today because Syngenta are AI pioneers who are leveraging machine learning to enable farmers to nourish us with ever-increasing efficiency and simultaneously an ever-smaller climate footprint. Super, super cool. All three guests are senior leaders at Syngenta, and each is at the vanguard of this socially impactful AI transformation. Feroz Sheikh is Chief Information Officer and Chief Digital Officer at Syngenta Group. Until last year, he was their Global Head of Engineering and Data Science. Separately from Syngenta, Feroz has made education accessible to 200 million children, through digital tech. Our second guest is Jeremy Gretke. Jeremy is head of computational agronomy, wherein he leads the Syngenta Group's digital agronomy and data science teams to, for example, define farm-based experimental designs and create planting, spraying, and fertilizer prescriptions to meet the needs of agronomists and farmers. And our third guest is Thomas Young, who is Syngenta's head of R&D for IT. He's responsible for the digitization of science to protect our plants and planet by leading Syngenta's DevOps, including for in silico biology and chemistry, as well as digital trialing and product development. Today's episode is mostly high level, so we'll be inspiring and educational to hands-on data science practitioners and non-practitioners alike. In the episode, Faroz, Jeremy, and Thomas detail how data science and AI can help us tackle the world's food security and climate change challenges, what computational agronomy is and how it increases crop yields, how generative chemistry accelerates the discovery of useful new agricultural compounds, how smart growth chambers illustrate today that on the farms of the future, ML will precisely monitor and assist every plant at every moment from seed to harvest. Finally, we've got ideas for how you yourself can apply ML to help feed the world. All right, you ready for this delicious episode? Let's go. Got the Syngenta crew here for a Super Data Science podcast. Thank you all for coming in and joining me from all over the world. Let's go sequentially by the way that the sun <laughs> is waking us all up over the course of the day. So for us, let's start with you. Uh, where in the world are you calling in from?
1: Hi
2: John, and uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm usually based in Switzerland, but today I'm I'm calling in from uh, from Pune in India. Nice.
0: And then in Switzerland, I think we have Thomas Young, is that correct?
2: That's
3: right, John. Thanks for inviting me. I'm holding position for Feroz here in Basel, beautiful Switzerland, calling from Europe.
0: Nice. And we have for people watching the video version, it it looks like Thomas is on this like fake Zoom background. But he actually, he proved to me that this is is, like painted on the wall. Uh, It's like the recording studio for Syngenta. So it's pretty amusing. Um, It's real. No AI involved. (laughs) and and then our final guest for our record three guests on the super data science podcast i don't think that's ever happened before it certainly hasn't in the three years that i've been hosting we've got jeremy jeremy where are you calling in from
1: hey john uh here in uh, des moines iowa so central corn belt uh for agriculture and uh looking forward to the conversation today
0: agriculture certainly is the theme of the day and yeah, I had the great pleasure of meeting Faraz and Thomas in Switzerland when I was there in May for the St Gallen Symposium. We've actually had a few guests on the show um, that were people that I met um, at the symposium, so folks may have noticed that name come up a few times uh, in recent months. And but there's also there's a special connection here because our researcher for the Super Data Science Podcast, Serge Massis, he also works at Syngenta, and so he knows all three of our guests today. And uh, so Serge's in most episodes, he's digging up uh, details on on uh, our guests and coming up with basically all the best questions that I ask <laughs> are Serge's idea. And uh, in this case, he was also able to work with his colleagues on uh, putting some questions together. So there's also that special connection there. Um, so in terms of those uh, that research that Serge has prepared, so Faraz, you are the chief information officer as well as the chief digital officer officer an agriculture company, Syngenta, with a mission to improve food security and sustainability. Now, agriculture is not necessarily an industry that you would perceive of as data intensive. Um, so could you set, could you shed some light on the role that data science and machine learning play at Syngenta?
2: Yeah, uh, agriculture is... Uh you can see it as a jigsaw puzzle that's my my uh, favorite analogy uh, that uh, you know as we start looking at um, creating the food security for uh, for the growing population uh, the yield has to continue to increase and over the last 40 50 years uh, we've seen that uh, you know advancements in genetics advancements in chemistry Uh, And advancements in machinery on the farm have, uh, you know, made a significant impact. And the next bit of uh, improvement in agriculture would come through uh, the use of uh, applying data and data science. So it's like the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And when this piece falls in place, we will see a tremendous amount of uh, uh, transformation for agriculture.
0: Nice. I like that analogy for us, this idea of a jigsaw puzzle and data being the missing piece in there. Um, so, Syngenta in particular is focused on tackling big challenges that our society faces, like food security and climate change. Could you speak a bit to how data science and machine learning are specifically used to tackle those?
2: As uh, I mean, we, when you think about the world today, um, the population continues to grow. Um, By 2050, we will be 10 billion people on the planet. Uh, But there is no more agricultural land. And there are several research studies and and surveys that indicate that uh, globally, agriculture has reached the peak uh, land available. Uh, Any more land would come at the cost of, you know, uh, deforestation and things like that, which we as a society don't want. Similarly, you know, the the climate change continues to uh, affect us. And uh, if we have to limit global warming to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius target, uh, we need to reduce carbon emissions by uh, 22 gigatons. And nearly 25% of those emissions come from food and agriculture-related activities. Um, So when you talk about problems, uh, big problems, these are really planet scale problems we are talking about here,
0: Wow, yeah, I wasn't aware of that uh, that one in one in four uh, units of carbon dioxide emissions come from agriculture, and that's not something that we can you know just get rid of <laughs> we need to keep eating. So, yeah, this is essential in order for us to be able to all live together. Uh, and we're still anticipating for a few decades more that a couple billion more people will come on the planet. so. This efficiency is essential uh, to being able to feed all of us, and then I think food security is critical to in general avoiding other conflicts on the planet. Um, I think that um, I, th- I think it's clear that when there are uh, heat waves and uh, farming is disrupted in regions, that is likely to precipitate um, to precipitate armed conflict, um, and so. Yeah, in so many ways, this this ability to be able to feed everyone on the planet without further increasing our carbon footprint, without further deforesting the planet, Um, lofty goals, big challenges. uh, And it's great that Syngenta are up to it and that data science and machine learning are playing a role. Um, So yeah, so a specific kind of question related to this, something that I've read about, uh, heard about, but don't uh, personally know much about is something called precision agriculture. So how can we use precision agriculture to boost productivity while mitigating
2: risks? Historically, uh, agriculture has been um, a practice of dealing with averages. So you have a, a large field out there, you plant an average rate of seed. Uh, the plants grow and you spray, you know, broadcast herbicide and, and so on, right? So it's, it's been, you know, just dealing with averages. Uh, but it's natural to understand that not every part of the field is similar. You know, soil quality changes uh, uh, within the field. Uh, the, the productivity and the nutrition available to the plants changes or the risk of, uh, let's say, weed emerging in different parts of the field is different. And and that's that's where precision agriculture is um, is a shift from those averages, uh, bringing it down to you know dealing with different parts of the field in in different uh, agronomic uh, protocols and interventions. Um, I like to see it as you know going down from these averages uh, to caring for every single plant, so you get uh, spatial precision. Um, providing that care to the plant when the plant needs it, that is temporal precision, um, and then down to genetic precision where we are looking at, you know, exactly what maybe the wheat species it is uh, or the insect species and what's the best recommended intervention for that might be. Um, So that's that's what it is. I mean, uh, um, the listeners would appreciate going from averages down to dealing with every specimen um, through uh, you know uh, spatial, temporal, and uh, species level precision.
0: Very cool, uh, spatial, temporal, and species level precision. I love that idea. So I guess there's eventually a goal to be able to use data collection to really be able to track. Uh, I, I I imagine that's not something that's pervasive globally right now. To be able to track uh, every individual plant at every time point and know exactly what's right for them, um, but maybe. Uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, that you guys are starting to work on. And so I guess this would eventually allow us to have what we call a digital twin of a real life farm.
2: Absolutely.
0: All right. So uh, speaking of farms, Jeremy, you grew up on one and you have over two decades of experience in agronomy and you're now heading computational agronomy at Syngenta. So what does agronomy mean and what makes it computational?
1: Uh, John, uh, great to be here. So yeah, I grew up on a family farm and uh, as, as Rose was talking there on the precision ag, I got to thinking back. So the first time uh, we implemented precision farming on our on our actual farm was in 1995. Uh, we Whoa. implemented a, a technology that was called yield monitors. And so very simply, it's a, a mechanistic technology. Uh, pressure plate. And so as the grain would go by, it would read different uh, pressures and that pressures uh, through data science. I mean, this is old school data science, right? Uh, was converted and calibrated to to give growers bushels per acre. Uh, and that was really the first time uh, that growers were able to move from what Rose mentioned on field averages, because for up to that point, most all growers would be this farm yielded 180 bushel. But within that, every grower knew that it ranged from 220 to 120 bushels. There was variation that happened, but they would farm on the averages. And so, you know, what is computational agronomy and what is agronomy? Uh, Agronomy is the science uh, of growing, you know, plants at the end of the day. It combines soil science environmental sciences, as well as plant sciences. And agronomy really is the nexus to bring all of these disciplines together. Uh, You know, in our own organization, we'll have plant breeders, we'll have soil scientists, we'll have climatologists, but agronomy is this nexus to bring all of those components together. So (laughs) no different than you watering your grass out in your yard, right? Agronomy is used in in turf management and in, in vines and grapes. Um, it's to bring all those together to maximize production ultimately uh, with uh, the minimal inputs as you can. And so what is computational agronomy? Well, this is the, the codification uh, of those uh, processes and principles or the rules of crop science, as we would call it. Uh, and so what does it mean for water to move from the, the ground into a plant and, and out the uh, uh, stomates, right, transpiration? How does that work? And so we really want to get into the science of that piece and codify it so that we can build these digital twins. We have to understand these principles uh, so that we can replicate them in a computer and an environmental world. Uh, And so I'm sure we'll get into it, but we use many uh, principles and many different components from mechanistic models to machine learning models uh, to empirical, uh, all types of different models to represent and uh, reproduce What I used to do uh, as an agronomist, which was very manual, right? Um, As I went to school, I learned all these sciences, uh, put them into my head (laughs) through memorization and study and education. And then I would walk into cornfields and soybean fields and and diagnose what's going on. Is there a disease? Is there an insect? Is the plant stand correct? Like all of these things visually and cognitively. And now what we're doing is taking that same component's and converting them to machine learning and technologies. Um, And frankly, the advent of machine learning and computer vision has just accelerated this. So it's an old hat. When I went to school, it was just called statistics. Uh, Now it's way cooler and called data science, Uh, but uh, in the new technologies that come.
0: Are you stuck between optimizing latency and lowering your inference costs as you build your generative AI applications? Find out why more ML developers are moving toward AWS Trainium and Inferentia to build and serve their large language models. You can save up to 50% on training costs with AWS Trainium chips, and up to 40% on inference costs with AWS Inferentia chips. Trainium and Inferentia will help you achieve higher performance, lower costs, and be more sustainable. Check out the links in the show notes to learn more. All right, now back to our show. Yeah, that is exactly right. It, it this <laughs> in this field, probably all four of us have been doing it uh, for a while under the guise of statistics, um, but now yeah, we have um, much more computationally intensive algorithms, and so I think that's part of why we end up uh, calling it data science. This big umbrella term that captures not only statistics but also you know, machine learning approaches that uh, that aren't statistics, but very cool to hear how computational agronomy. Is is taking all of the things that you learned about optimizing yield and soil management, and piece by piece. I imagine you're kind of trying to say, okay, where is the next piece of low hanging fruit here, uh, figuratively speaking, uh, in terms of being able to, uh, uh, yeah, to say, you know, what's what's the next thing that we can automate? How can we get a machine learning algorithm to learn this task? A machine vision algorithm uh, to be able to capture the knowledge that you learned in school, Jeremy and be able to ensure that plants are healthy, they're standing tall and, produ- and bearing lots of uh, literal fruit. Um, so yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, so how are things like satellite imagery and remote sensing used to monitor fields already today and enhance operational efficiency? And then what do you kind of see happening as next steps? What are the next bits of, again, figurative low-hanging fruit?
1: Yeah, I think just a little bit of uh, the history on that as we move into some of these topics. I think, you know, ag, we've been trying to solve a lot of these components and problems, you know, as as a point source. Right. So trying to figure out how to do nitrogen management or stand counts or disease management. We've been uh, really doing these as point source components when the reality is, is they're all highly interdependent um, and have it's a very complex ecosystem. Mother nature is not easy. Right. uh, At that component. And so as we've gone forward, we have these multiple scales that we have to operate at. We have to operate and understand what's going on at the plant level. And so that's where we look at technologies like with through phones and very close up uh, camera and resolution so that we can take a picture of a disease uh, and use computer vision technologies to identify and train those models uh, so that the, the human force can be, you know, scaled and 10x and so they're able to very quickly go from what is on my plant to how to treat and and recommend that plant but that's at a a leaf level and then you're going to move backwards uh, up at scale and so around the world depending on what country you're in farm sizes have continued to get bigger whether you're in a, a country that starts with one hectare and they went to five hectares they're still getting bigger in scale Or if you're talking about in the U.S., uh, Europe, Latin America, where they're in the 10s and 20s and 30,000s of hectares uh, that growers manage. And so the complexity of management and scale of management has continued to grow. And so that's where we start looking at other technologies like remote sensing to be able to help growers monitor change management. Right. Uh, Agricultural is through constant change uh, because Mother Nature is not consistent. Uh, weather and climate make a big impact on the plan that growers have for the crop growth and development. We may get drought. You can see the heat waves around the world, or floods, or rains. Uh, and that changes how growers have to manage. And so, this is where we really got to be dynamic in the data science to incorporate those environmental classifications to really understand the impacts. Um, The law of the average in this world is definitely not going to work. We've really got to be dynamic and understanding when we see extremes, forecasting them, and what the impact of that is going to be into the growth of those crops uh, around the world. So it really comes down to the scale that we're trying to manage, John. If we're trying to look at a plant level, we're going to use very specific, like Froze mentioned, uh, species level genetic information uh, combined with data science on how to manage that, right? Is that specific genetics tolerant to a disease? Is it susceptible? So when I take that photo and I know that it's there in presence, what is the response we expect from that plant? Will it be able to hold off that disease or will it be susceptible? And then combine that all the way through to the recommendation. As, at the end of the day, the grower wants to know what action they need to take uh and that's really what we try to do we we simplify and do all the complex data science internally but really we just want to give the grower a a recommendation of what they need to do as a next step
0: yeah let's dig into that uh a little in a little bit more detail so that we can kind of understand uh not just at a high level but maybe kind of like with a case study or two when an individual farmer wherever they are in the world um, when they're working with Syngenta and they want to be optimizing their yields, I mean, that seems like an obvious thing to be doing. They want to be making the best use of the current soil conditions that they have of, you know, the anticipated climate conditions over the coming year. So when they're, you know, planning for the harvest, I mean, yeah, if you could dig into like a specific use case where like, you know, if I'm a farmer, how do i interact with syngenta uh and and then how does syngenta provide recommendations for how the farmer can can be optimizing their yields
1: yeah no uh, a great uh, kind of near term use case that just happened to this growing season here in the, the southern hemisphere in the argentina market is and so Many of you may hear of El Nino, La Nino uh, effects, right, uh, that go on from uh, the climate uh, and that effects. And that has it, can have significant impact on what the forecasted weather uh, can be. And so we actually have internally have developed um, kind of a, a yield prediction model. Uh, and so what we can do is when we bring in soils, climate information, we can help growers understand what their yield potential is going to be in the upcoming season. And so we were able to, this last season uh, with growers, uh, knowing that the long-term forecast um, of El Nino was coming in, uh, and La Nina, what the difference is, we incorporate that into the model. We're able to now then place product recommendations and density recommendations for those growers. Because the forecast was for a dry season coming up uh, before they even started planting. And so we were able to communicate that to growers and help them make, better seed selections as well as management selections going into a conservative approach of drought that was going to be potentially coming on. Uh, And in hindsight, uh, that played out um, because again, the El Nino-La Nino effect is very strong in that part of the world. Uh, And so again, it's a a way of how we bring in multiple streams of data, combine them into a a digital twin and, and understanding what that impact is going to be and then converting that to product recommendations of the right hybrids and right seeding rates, moving into a dry climatic region where their yield potential was going to be reduced. So that's really how we get way more efficient with growers and helping them become stay profitable and be profitable uh, and to produce food without wasting resources uh, as an example there, John.
0: Very cool example. Yeah, I read uh, just yesterday That uh, South America and Canada had uh, bumper years for wheat. I think it was, Um, and so helping keep those costs down uh, globally um, uh, this year. Uh, So then, specifically in terms of interaction, like the mechanics of that, Jeremy, like does does the farmer like log into an app on their phone, or Mm -hmm. they sit at their computer? Like how how does it work when you when you convey this information to them? And how do they get kind of looped in, in general? Is it that they, um, you know, they, they're you they looking for someone to buy seeds from, and they're like, oh, if I work with Syngenta, then I can get all this useful predictive information that is likely to um,
1: make sure that I get a better uh, bang for my buck. Yep, uh, so growers, much like the general population, uh, there's a bell curve of adoption, right? You have the <laughs> bleeding edge, leading edge, uh, and, and the majority of the middle. Uh, And so we do have some growers that adopt the technology um, by themselves and and log in and use our systems directly. Uh, But the reality is the majority of farmers that we deal with around the world work with our field staff, our channel partners that really deliver this information to growers um, in this world. Because, again, a grower by himself or herself uh, is, you know, they're a banker, an HR manager, they're agronomist. Um, They have to do all of these tasks because they're running their own business uh, at the end of the day. And so they really rely on the support of a lot of agronomists uh, and advisor networks around the world. And so we deliver a lot of our solutions and technologies through either direct route to markets or channel partners uh, to the majority of farmers. But yes, we do have farmers that work directly with our solutions. Uh, as well. And, and I'd say this has probably been the thing that I'll group Ag tech and kind of throw us maybe all a little under the bus here a little bit for the last 10 years. We've really not made things completely simple. And so we've really got to make a massive improvement. I think, uh, I'll be honest, I think all of Ag tech really underestimated user experience uh, in developing solutions in the first half uh, of this journey. Uh, and that has significantly changed in the later half here in the last three, four years. Like teams have user design, user, experiment, uh, user experience team and people to help make this much more simple. Uh, we can't just put up a, a big complex model out there and, and expect them to understand it and use it. They don't care, frankly. Um, and, and we've got to simplify the experience. I think that's going to be the big piece for us. And I see large language models, frankly, yeah. helping a lot with that yeah. as we move forward.
0: That was going to be my next question. I was like, "Ah, oh, this seems like such an obvious application. You could have large language models being able to answer people's questions, like in a like a, a kind of a chatbot experience. They go to Syngenta.com and just have this like interaction, or on their web app, or it could even be by voice. Like they don't even necessarily yep. need to be able to type. And in fact, there's probably a lot of farmers over the world." Where even literacy is, uh, you know, not guaranteed, and so you could even right. have it be voice, where they just speak to their phone in whatever language, um, and then the LLM can speak back and say, give and provide recommendations uh, and provide a huge amount of information. Like, you know, yeah, there could be things, uh, particularly in the developing world, where. There's just an education component to it where, you know, you can, you can explain with his voice, this LLM can just explain, uh, you know, oh yeah, you know, uh, if you're interested in hearing more about, um, next year's climate and the kinds of things that are going to affect it, um, just ask me some questions and it can, it can answer in real time. That's such an amazing opportunity there. And so I think that could potentially allow you to tighten the loop a bit where, um, cause my guess is when you're relying on channel partners or that kind of thing to convey information, you can't be sure of how the information is being delivered and you don't get as tight feedback back. But if they're working with you directly, then there's this opportunity to be not only getting, uh, verbal feedback kind of in real time, but you could, this also is now one step closer to people being able to provide the kind of precision agriculture that Faraz was talking about, where um, you know specific, where we have sensors, <laughs> and like and this is like now several jumps from just having a phone, but <laughs> you know having sensors that are uh, recognizing individual plant health at a specific time, and uh, Syngenta being able to directly advise and maybe say with an LLM, hey, it looks like that plant has this particular condition. You're going to need this kind of uh treatment for the plant um maybe next season you could do this thing differently with uh the way you've set up your farm to avoid this kind of issue happening in the future um really a huge amount of opportunity here i imagine
1: yeah yeah actually um ironically we just got done completing a a hackathon here um in the the code name was jarvis so for the marvels crew and and Tony Stark fans out there, right? Everybody knows Jarvis. Um, That's literally the concept that we were putting on the table is is how do these LLMs through voice, speech uh, to voice or text to voice conversions help this communication and deployment um, piece? Uh, Language barriers, a huge piece around the world um, and simplifying uh, this down. And and we do see this as a, a potential as we move forward. I think we have to watch out, for, I mean, everybody's aware of this, the hallucination piece uh, that mm-hmm. comes from the large language models currently in the tech stacks that exist. Um, and we see this really, again, I think I, I see this as a an interface more than the the model that is sitting behind them delivering the insights. We will leverage other models that actually deliver the insight or, or produce the insight. The LLMs will just relay it in a, a familiar tone and voice and, and communication style, but they're not, I don't think today going to be the ones that actually are the, the model uh, delivering the insight. We will have other models behind the scenes that are put together in our orchestration hub uh, example to deliver, but the LLMs uh, and text-to-voice will really be a user interface at the end of the day.
0: Deploying machine learning models into production doesn't need to require hours of engineering effort or complex homegrown solutions. In fact, data scientists may now not need engineering help at all. With ModelBit, you deploy ML models into production with one line of code. Simply call modelbit.deploy in your notebook and ModelBit will deploy your model with all its dependencies to production in as little as 10 seconds. Models can then be called as a REST endpoint in your product or from your warehouse as a SQL function. Very cool. Try it for free today at modelbit.com. That's M-O-D-E-L-B-I-T.com. Exactly how I was imagining it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. All right, we've had lots of head nodding from Thomas and for us. Thomas, let's jump to you since we haven't heard too much from you yet. Uh, so you are uh, the head of IT for R&D at Syngenta. So how is the application of data and I different for research and development than the kinds of things that we've been talking about so far with Jeremy and with Faraz largely where we were talking about um, data, and AI applications, data and AI applications with farmers directly. How is it different for R&D?
3: Yeah, I feel blessed actually in comparison to, to Jeremy and Jeremy's world because <laughs> the biggest difference is that we're able to control for almost every variable. Right? Where out in this world, a plant is not just a plant, right? But there's so many variables from soil to weather and everything in between. Uh, and we can control all of this in R&D. Obviously not the weather at a big scale, uh, but of course locally in any experiment that we do. Right, So we have much better means of creating the data we want and understanding deeply how plants react to whatever triggers we expose them to. So, which is beautiful thing for science, so it helps us innovate, but actually it also creates a couple of challenges and limitations, because when we do this, how can we translate this into the real world back again? right? And that actually is, to me, currently the biggest challenge in data collection and also in putting data together. Right? We're so smart in the labs, we're so smart in experiments, but how can we be sure this is exactly what happens out there in the open field? right? And for basically bridging that gap, right? That is where we don't have enough data quite generally speaking. Um, but what we can do in the lab is, is amazing actually.
0: Very cool, yeah, so this is in contrast to a typical farm set up today, I imagine. I mean, I'm sure there's there are farms or, you know, it's probably something that's, um, that's, a, that's a growing area where you have farms trying to have more comprehensive censoring um, but that I expect today isn't the norm. Whereas you're describing in the lab, um, you could either have uh, internal, like indoor experiments, I guess, where you literally control everything, yeah. or you could have outdoor experiments where, other than the weather, as you mentioned there, you can control all the factors and you can be collecting as much data as you want. So you can have the this precision agriculture that Faraz was talking about at the beginning. You can really have that in the lab. You can have all of the spatial temporal and genetic information on an individual plant level at a exact point in time, uh, to be providing guidance. But then as you're saying, the tricky part then is translation to the real world. Um, because yeah, in the real world, you are only in, I imagine very rare circumstances going to have that level of, um, spatial temporal and genetic precision. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah. So, how how do you do that? How do you how do you uh, think about experiments and and try to bridge that gap as best you can?
3: So we're actually we're learning, right? We're we're learning every day still, right? So we just recently had a had a beautiful example where we positioned hundreds of sensors in a in a field in a trial field, right, to capture data about the soil, capture data about almost every individual plant, and what's happening to that plant. And, of course, we knew the weather for this field, right from from our global data. So what we saw, actually, is a pattern that our scientists or data scientists couldn't explain, right? Because while the field was doing pretty good, a couple of plants were doing really, really bad. right? And the data collected by all our sensors didn't give any clue. right? So, Data science hits its limits, actually, when we're out in nature sometimes. So when you walk into this field, what do you see? Uh, Very, very simple. Frustratingly simple, actually. Those particular plants just stood in the shadow of a big tree. Simple as that, right? And the only thing we didn't measure was direct sunlight at the particular spot because we thought sun is sun in a given area, right? So, and this is just like, we're capturing all the data in the world, and we still miss something essentially. Uh, and that's actually the beauty of our job, right? That this is actually a field where we're learning every day. but we also have such a wealth of data and in our hands that we can do huge lot already with what we have
0: fascinating. yeah. so uh, so a big part of the learning there is figuring out how you can get more sensors out there. Um, and so the kind of work that you're doing, Thomas, is, you're thinking ahead in terms of what's possible in farming, and figuring out how how this is going to work. So, like I kind of talked about that tight loop earlier. You have the, the tightest loop in your lab, where you know you really are in control of everything. But you're you're imagining, okay, a few years out, maybe a decade out, um, how can we be having our far- have these kinds of sensors or tools in farmers' hands so that they're, they're measuring sunlight in a specific area and we can know that there's, you know, there's a problem due to the shade of another tree. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's really fascinating. So um, we talked uh, with Jeremy about uh, generative AI, about LLMs and the ways that those can interact with a person through generating natural language, whether that's written or spoken. Um, I understand that you're involved in something, Thomas, called generative chemistry. I've never heard of that before. What does that mean?
3: (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, it's this this great space, actually, before we are even hitting plants, right? It's understanding chemistry through large language models, but all all types of artificial intelligence in in most general terms, right? And if you want to stick close to language, probably a good one is retrosynthesis in in that space, which you may not have heard of either. Right. So, and I haven't because I'm not a chemist, right? It's fascinating to, to learn. So, this, essentially, this is decomposing chemistry, right? And understanding reactions required to produce a certain desired molecule, right? So, once we know what molecule actually we, we want to create uh, to try the effect on, on a plant. Right? We typically have scientists trying this based on all their historical knowledge and their brains and their smarts, right? which is a bit of trial and error and very often succeeds, but needs a couple of runs. Right? And what has been happening in the industry, it's not a Syngenta invention. The, what we're doing together with many, many partners is to apply large language models to chemical reactions. Right? Because in the end, chemistry is a language. Right? And quite literally, actually, some of the models behind Google Translate have been used in chemistry, right? saying a reaction oh, A plus B really? equals C right, is kind of a language. Right? It's a very particular language, but the fundamental model is reasonably similar. So what we're able to do with all this is essentially having the algorithm suggest chemical roots, that's how we call it, essentially suggest experiments, suggest reactions to do to create a desired molecule. And the algorithm would generally get it right. right? Uh, Where we're at at the moment is that we get a set of 10, probably, recommendations. And we'll have our scientists look at these, scientists check those, and most likely they'll find one route that actually is very much uh, an appropriate one. Right, that is able to create a molecule that's actually a very novel molecule.
0: Hey, so this sounds somewhat familiar to me to the kinds of research uh, that DeepMind does with AlphaFold, where you're using uh, the uh, the sequences of genetic information um, or protein information to predict what a protein structure will look like in three D. And this has been Historically, a task that is extremely compute-intensive, not very accurate, but just in recent years, these kinds of computational approaches have become suddenly extremely effective. And for some particular kinds of these, uh, at least protein structure uh, prediction problems that AlphaFold is tackling, that DeepMind is tackling with AlphaFold, sorry, um, these are like solve problems in some cases um and in other cases i know that it's still extremely difficult to be able to make these predictions accurately so earlier this year we had professor charlotte dean from oxford university in episode number 643 and she specialized in um uh, you know she's friends with demis from from deepmind and i think the night if i remember correctly the night before we recorded she'd been having dinner with him and so you know they end up talking about alphafold and these uh these these, uh, biological structure prediction problems, but Charlotte's tackling ones that, um, deep hasn't cracked yet. Uh, she has, cause there's, you know, some molecules, um, have properties that make them easier to predict than others, um, with today's technology. Yeah. So, um, this sounds really fascinating. What kinds of compounds, what kinds of compounds are you trying to predict Thomas? And why is this useful in agriculture?
3: So what's been most inspiring for me in the past month, actually, is when the models help scientists to stretch their own imagination, right? So when we're looking for, for new products, right, new molecules that, that can help protect plants, they usually are generally known classes of activity, right? So when a scientist would see a molecule, they can usually say, like, this could be a viable option or not, Right. And what we're hoping to achieve, and we're seeing exciting first science through these large language models and, and other models, actually, is that we're, we're stretching that, that universe that scientists look at. Right? And most recently, we, again, had a couple of recommended molecules uh, for a certain biological challenge. And in this set, there was one very, very odd molecule right, that our scientists just bluntly dismissed. Like this, this is never going to be a herbicide. It just doesn't look like a herbicide. This can't be a herbicide. Right? Then you still take a second look at it and you realize that magically there is actually some activity like a herbicide. Right? It's not going to be oh, a product. Really? It wasn't the perfect suggestion, right? But it was something that every human would have completely dismissed. But for some magical reasons, it still is a black box, right? Our algorithms would say, look at this. So and that, that's for me the, the biggest promise, actually, right? That we can explore areas of chemistry that no man has ever looked before, essentially, because the model would suggest us to go there. And that to me is super exciting.
0: Yeah, really fascinating indeed. So Um, For us, I've noticed that you've been taking lots of notes, and you've been smiling enthusiastically uh, as Thomas and Jeremy were speaking their pieces. So I'm sure you have uh, lots of follow up things that you'd like to say, but let me give a little bit of context, which is that as a seasoned CTO and entrepreneur, you've seen firsthand the challenges of deploying innovative technological solutions at scale. So taking the kinds of things that Thomas was talking about, and applying them at the kind of scale that Jeremy needs in practice on all the farms. So um what's your vision for how that gap can be bridged um how can data science and machine learning make its way out of the
2: lab and into all the fields all over the world yeah uh it's i mean some of the ideas that jeremy and thomas were talking about are kind of like the utopian dreams that if they come true you know you would really start to see a big step change in agriculture uh and, you know, there are practical challenges. So when, when we start taking technology out in the field, things don't exactly pan out what you expected. You know, uh, the, the, my favorite example is, you know, you develop a, a, a very sophisticated computer vision algorithm and we take it out in the field. And uh, what you have is a little bit of mud obscuring the camera. Uh, examples like these uh, make it harder. Uh, to, to take the technology out in the field, and you have to then account for various uh, um, scenarios like this that may interfere. Um, another, another example I have is, uh, you know, some of the modern tractors and, and machinery are so sophisticated. They generate so much data. You know, we are really talking about gigabytes of data being generated every time that machine goes out in the field. And uh, the ISO standards and the wires and the connectors in the in the tractor today are not uh, are reaching their limit of how much data they can transfer. So mm-hmm. the industry standards and bodies are having to evolve those standards to allow this much of uh, data for precision um, to to pass through to the algorithms that are then you know acting on that data
0: right. So things like five five g today. Uh, you know, emerging more and more. And then for the 6G standards, I guess that are coming in the future and the 7G after that, uh, it's going to allow for more and more of this precision agriculture, Um, I, I imagine. And yeah. yeah, I kind of just spoke over
2: you. <laughs> yeah, that uh, plus also, you know, this uh, fact that a lot of this innovation needs to probably start to operate on the edge. So when you develop these models uh. that, you know, uh, transferring that volume of data from remote fields you know back to the cloud uh, could possibly right. be a, a after the fact sync uh, but you allow the machine to to intervene right there when it is out in the field you know by operating on the edge um, and there is this uh, you know combination of uh, 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 applying the data to to decide to create a prescription or to prepare a product and then take it out in the field so you don't have to do all the computation out in the field you know based on all the data that we have seen either through the iot sensors uh, satellite imagery or you know the last time the tractor was out in the field which t- collected so much data uh, we could create prescriptions and those prescriptions can be sent as an instruction to the machine uh, which is then geocoded for example let's say you know about a herbicide application so the machine goes out next time, and it is carrying out that prescription uh, as applied.
0: Very cool. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting that I didn't even think of that. I mean, we talk about edge computation on the show pretty frequently, but for <laughs> me, it was like, oh, we just need to figure out a way to get all these huge amounts of data, gigabytes today, terabytes tomorrow. Let's just get some networks and get those all back to Syngenta's servers so that you can be processing. But actually, yeah, the solution you're dis- you're describing makes much more sense. <laughs> where we uh, we have the models working on edge devices. They can just be working there in real time. And so it's, it's interesting now that you mentioned these huge amounts of data coming from devices like tractors, where on the one hand, we have huge amounts of data coming in, more than can possibly be sent, uh, more than can possibly be processed. And simultaneously, we don't have nearly enough information. <laughs> We're missing a lot of the information that Thomas and Jeremy would like to have in order to be able to make their best recommendations and have you know real precision agriculture, so yeah, it's an interesting situation where I guess we and it's the natural way that things will evolve, where the the maker of the tractor is thinking, well, you know, I can sell more sensors on this thing, and the farmer will pay for them, and so then you know there's more and more and more data being collected of this very specific type that isn't necessarily exactly what you need um, in computational agronomy to get the best out of an individual plant or get the best out of an individual farm. So yeah, so I guess there'll be all these changes. I mean, it's amazing how how rapidly things change. I wonder...
2: We can start to think about, you know, uh, the difference between what's perfect or what's best versus what's good enough. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to, to build upon your point that uh, we could have the most sophisticated models that need... The most precise measurements at you know uh, in in near real time, uh, but then there is also a cost associated with collecting that much data and processing it and and so on. Uh, for the most part, you know, it might be good enough if you were to uh, uh, take a uh, reduce the sampling rate or reduce the frequency and and so on. Um, and I think that's the uh, that's one philosophy which we try to follow is to strike a balance between you know the most perfect data point the most perfect uh, sensor uh, the most uh, granular possible versus what's good enough for the most part you know
0: yeah 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 and so as as we've as any regular listener of the show will have heard i'm constantly talking about large language models open source llms the way that these are dramatically transforming the field of ai everyone in You know, a huge portion of the world now is aware of tools like ChatGPT in particular. And so these transformative changes happen really fast in AI, in data science. But hearing all three of you describe the problems that you're tackling, it is abundantly clear to me that not just for years to come, but for decades to come, there will be problems to solve here and situations that can be optimized. Because even if Thomas, sitting in his lab, is able to come up with this outstanding model, or Jeremy knows from uh, his computational agronomy that, you know, there's this great opportunity to be optimizing yield, it's still going to be so many years, it's going to be decades before the hardware can be out there to be collecting the relevant data uh, in the way that you'd ideally like to have, um, to be able to compute on the edge or to be able to transmit those data uh, for processing on a server. There's like, yeah, I mean, there's there's certain situations like I, I imagine in the West, there's particular situations where, you know, tractors, say, are able to collect a lot of data. But then when we think about farmers in the developing world who just, who maybe just have a phone and they might not even have that today. Um... And, and you know relatively low bandwidth over satellites in a lot of these places. And so there's, you can see that even if the, the data science and the AI progresses very rapidly today, there's still decades and decades of work to ensure that um, all of these advances propagate out. And then there's this really nice investors AI investors love to talk about flywheel effects. You've got this flywheel effect where as more and more of those devices get out there, as we have more and more edge compute, as more and more of these algorithms are developed, um, as these kinds of standards that you were talking about there Faraz, as those become, as the standards become standard um, Mm -hmm. and there's better interplay between devices and models and providers, um, there'll be this this flywheel effect where more and more models can be useful. And then so more and more hardware is useful in the field. And so it's just this continuous acceleration of
2: uh, precision agriculture that's really exciting so yeah and if if i could just build on that there is yeah. one additional factor that will happen i mean y- yes it will take time to perfect what works in the lab and make it scalable out in the field with all the variability that comes you know out in the field um but there is uh, there are some interesting effects which will happen. so it it may not probably take decades, it will probably have happen sooner. Um, is a leapfrog effect. So where you know oh, um, right. farmers, countries, and economies will learn from what's happening elsewhere. And I'll take a very simple example uh, of uh, uh, the use of drones in agriculture. now the the Western farmers, the developed uh, world, went through several iterations of perfecting what a drone can do, whether it is scouting or spray application in a field. Um, but the developing countries right, would probably get there in one single leap uh, because they don't need to re- uh, redo all of those learning steps. Um, the same drone, which will need to come back for recharging, which is limited by its, uh, its uh, range, or the capacity of the tank, you know, f- when it is flying over a 2,000-hectare field in the U.S., can quite easily, in a single fly pass, cover a 10-hectare field in, in India. So the technology, which, you know, got incubated in a in a different market, uh, probably is going to reach its limit of applicability. But in the other markets, uh, you know, it's, it's ideally suited. And that will then trigger this leapfrog, the 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 flywheel effect that you spoke about where you you have uh, uh, farmers who are starting to get aware of what the drone could do for me, and you have uh, micro entrepreneurs who are coming in to help the farmer operate the drone, and then we have the data and the products that actually leverage the availability of the drone to make an impact for the farmer,
3: yeah, and wow. probably to, to to add one more of these these impacts that can actually propel us by by decades, right? I referred earlier to the challenge of translating what happens in in an experiment to the real world, right? And the more actually our farmers are professional data workers of some sort, right? And the more data we have of what happens on the actual farm uh, and people are sharing this and ideally we're sharing a lot of our data uh, and farmers are sharing their data in a very open data ecosystem, the better we can actually understand what happens on a farm, on the field, and how it relates to what happens in the experiments?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, and really exciting that you know I was I yeah I wasn't thinking about these kinds of leapfrog effects that will allow some of these innovations to make a really big impact right away. Uh, where yeah, the Indian farmer can buy a drone and then uh, and then all of a sudden be having uh, capabilities um, instantly that took many years to develop elsewhere. Very cool. So if we have listeners out there who are data scientists or getting into data science and they're thinking, wow, I want to make a big social impact, it's clear that there is a huge social impact that they can be making in feeding the world um, in all the kinds of problems that you have been talking about, Uh, all three of you have been talking about in this episode. I know that Syngenta has a startup accelerator and a venture capital arm so there's Syngenta Group Ventures specifically as that VC arm. So what kinds of challenges are there in agriculture that a listener out there might uh, want to address right away?
2: Yeah, uh, I think uh, one of the key problems that we are looking to solve is you know, in, in this area of sustainable agriculture or what we call as regenerative agriculture. Um, we've identified uh, soil health, as a key uh, area that has an impact on the uh, outcome or yield that you can expect. Um, And any kind of, you know, technology that could be looking at data collected through sensors or through satellite imagery that helps us interpret, you know, what are the various properties of the soil and, uh, you know, matching it with agronomic protocols to. Uh, Regenerate the soil, uh, measure the organic uh, soil organic carbon, and and help quantify the carbon uh, that has been sequestered. Could potentially lead to uh, improving the yield per per acre for the farmers, and it could also help uh, generate new revenue streams for the farmers if the farmer has a reliable carbon measurement, for example. Um, So some of those areas, you know, when it comes to regenerative agriculture. could help uh, the farmer, and if there are startups and and uh, data scientists and innovators out there, uh, they could you know think about some of these kind of problems. Um, another example I can take is you know when we start to look at entirely novel agronomic protocols. You know, uh, when when cultivating rice, you have to first uh, plant the rice in a in a nursery. And then when the plant is, you know, at a certain growth stage, you have to take it and uh, put it out there in the open field. That's called transplantation. Uh, But through the use of uh, drones and, uh, you know, innovative products, what we are looking at is direct seeding of an open field, eliminating the whole transplantation step in the middle. Now, this may not seem like a Uh, an obvious problem for a startup to imagine but there is a whole lot of data data science and how to run that drone and and allow it to to plant the seeds at the right place that can have this kind of an impact you know eliminating the um, the whole step of transplantation for rice farmers Um, and if this happens at scale um, it would be transformative for for everyone and we do have some work going on in the space where we have Innovative uh, products uh, for rice growers and um, drone solutions that uh, that we are trying out in con- countries like Japan and and Indonesia.
0: Nice, excellent examples there. And yeah, so I hope there are some inspired listeners out there thinking, "All right, I'm going to get a startup going, uh, start getting a pitch deck together, and start trying to figure out how we can be doing these kinds of things, like uh, having direct seating with drones." Um, really exciting things, really big opportunity, um, to feed the world, um, through innovation. Um, so speaking of innovation, Jeremy, we've, uh, talked about how we want to get these innovations into the field a lot. Um, when you're doing that, when you want to be making recommendations to a farmer, um, are you able to give us some insight? Obviously there's, there's going to be some kinds of, uh, proprietary secrets that you can't divulge, but. Um, to what extent um, are you thinking about like using a simple heuristic model, or do we, or or a complex machine learning model? When you're thinking about tackling a specific agronomic recommendation for a farmer, yeah, how do you go about
1: um, designing your ML models? Yeah, no, uh, I think. <laughs> Yeah, and and some of the listeners have have had one of my colleagues. uh, So, uh, you know, I hire great people like Surge, right? Uh, (laughs) Another data scientist on our team. Um, And and really, we try not to confine them to any one type of model technology. Uh, It could be a a simple uh, weather-based or heat unit or heuristic. Uh, We could use uh, Bayesian uh, machine learning, like we, we really don't try to limit the teams and say only use this methodology or this tech stack um, to be able to solve the problem. So we have examples where we view CNNs uh, all the way through for machine learning of yield prediction through satellite imagery and, and training data sets. We have very basic empirical models uh that are calibrated and and validated uh to deploy and and have disease estimations of of that coming out to very complex and data intensive uh mechanistic models uh that can come uh, and deliver and so we try not to say go one way or the other and and frankly what we've seen is it's the combination of these models um and so because ag um it is a cyclical world right you plant a seed it grows you harvest it the timeline is very different if it's a tree or a, a leaf of lettuce that you're growing but that timeline just changes but it's the same basic principle you plant and harvest and so there's always an off cycle uh in this in this world a fallow world uh that doesn't happen and so we may not always get a, get data sensors um you know active during the season and so we have to have models and, and systems that work when the plants are not even growing so that we can say what is coming and so this is why not always uh, is machine learning the solution uh, is a mechanistic uh, the solution sometimes we need to have both operate uh, in conjunction or an orchestration uh, of these models and bring them together and so that's what i would say honestly has been Probably, I think the breakthrough on the team. Um, we really try to hire data scientists that have skill sets in all of these. So, my, my pitch to every audience uh, audience member is: come work for us. Uh, we're really cool and sexy, and we work on every single tech that you can think of. Um, it's not just Google, Facebook, and Uber and all them. Like Ag uh, dives into the newest tech we are uh, working on. So, <laughs> please, uh, I'm hiring. Come look. Um, but I think that's the thing that the team has unlocked. And as we bring data scientists together that may be very specialized with transformers or CNNs or large language models or, or old school guys doing principal component analysis or mechanistic models, like the, the unlock, frankly, and I don't think it's trade secrets, but it's, it's combining these technologies um, and really stringing them together together to bring them out uh, and unlock. Because frankly, when we've gone down one path, like we hit a roadblock because we the data source doesn't become relevant. It's trained on a very limited data set. So we've had it where we can train a machine learning model for say uh, the North America market. And then when we move to the Latin America market, it doesn't transfer. And so this transfer learning piece, we've really been exploring and trying to understand because uh, we want to operate on a global scale uh in that piece. And so this is some things where we have to have almost one model as an input to another model. Um, and this is a framework that we've actually been developing behind the scenes. Um, it's kind of like going to your kitchen. Uh, you know, each model becomes its own thing. And so it could be the flour, it could be the sugar, it could be the honey. It's an ingredient. So we may have a model for, for phonology and a model for yield prediction. Um, and a model for weather. Well, those are all individual ones, but we're going to plug these together to actually deliver a true insight. And so this is really where we're starting to go as models are becoming ingredients into other larger complex models. Um, I think we went down this path of like, oh, we just need this. And the, the reality is that's not the case. And, and they also feed inputs into other models.
0: Fascinating. That makes a lot of sense. And how rude of me. To suggest uh, the venture arm and startups as the first route for our listeners to go to when they want to be making a big impact with with agriculture, of course, they should be looking at Syngenta as well so they can really hit the ground running and take uh, take advantage of experts like all of you three and all the other data scientists like Surge that are there. Yeah, it sounds like a really amazing opportunity where in that kind of role, you're then working with all these different kinds of hardware all these different kinds of problems uh with drones with machine vision problems uh weather problems soil health problems yield problems there's yeah like you're saying all these different ingredients which can be different models and then i imagine there's also fascinating things around getting the data engineering and the machine learning engineering right so that the data flows and the model outputs respectively are uh are well-optimized so that when you have all these models chained together, um, they can still be performant in real time in production. So that that does sound,
1: yeah. No, John, it's spot on. And this is a a piece of, I think, really where we're headed in insight. So frankly, there is a foot army of of advisors and agronomists and people walking, walking fields around the world. And they're taking notes and observations, whether it's pictures or free text or or whatever. And this is this direct feedback loop that can happen in in the real time world of of models. And so we could have a model that says uh, tar spot is coming into the environment and in real time on the ground validation happens when an agronomist walks out in that field or a scout and says, yep, tar spots here. And so that automatically can feed back into the training in real time. Uh, and so this is really where we start seeing, I think, the, um, the error bars shrinking um, and the prediction accuracy moving at really rapid pace as we make these connections. Uh, and so this is some big architecture and, and key components. You know, it's like Tesla, right? Every mile they drive improves and develops their model because they have this feedback loop, right? And we see the same methodology or process coming in ag, whether it comes from a tractor driving through the field um, or a a human walking it. We're going to have this much more automated data stream coming uh, that we've never had before. Um, And so that's the biggest thing because all this data is great, but we have to get to causality and repeatability To really drive and develop the insights and and I think that's the piece that we've struggled over the years is like Thomas mentioned oh I needed to know the sunlight to know that that's shading right you know the smoke that comes across North America from the Canadian fires what's that doing to our solar radiation reduction for photosynthetic capacity that is going on and so these are things that we have to get causality figured out for uh, and codified and this is the key thing like we know it in our heads, because we've been trained as, as a scientist, but codification of that and getting it into algorithms and combining them is really where we start making these jumps.
3: Yeah, just, just to build on this point, because it's, it's so exciting how actually science is changing because of exactly what Jeremy is saying. Like where historically, I mean, traditional scientists would have a hypothesis right, and try to prove or disprove that hypothesis through an experiment. Right? And what we're doing now is actually we are creating the data we want and we are running experiments to train our models. Right? We're not proving or disproving anything anymore. I mean, we do in places, but in other places, actually, we would run experiments just to create training data. Right? And that, to me, is a fundamental shift of science, right? where it's not about right or wrong or testing, trying something, but actually we have physical science in service of data science. And that's just fascinating that we have this ability to create the data we need.
0: Yeah, really fascinating. And I imagine there's things that you can do on the R and D side, Thomas, to be helping with that. So um, I've read about smart growth chambers, for example. Is that helpful here? That is actually. I mean, it's,
3: it's it's part of part of that story, actually, right? So we got a couple of dozen growth chambers. They're probably as big as your garage. Uh, don't know your garage specifically. So, but. In yeah, general I live first, in Manhattan, right? so <laughs> that's <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Not twenty Teslas in your garage, so any regular garage size, right? So a couple of dozen of of those those chambers where we can essentially simulate any climate that we want, right? And that simulation is just the input, right? What to me is even more appealing is that we also control the data output, obviously, right? Because it's a very controlled environment. We can measure whatever we want. We can measure every single plant. We can have photos, images of every plant. Every minute is rarely useful, but every hour, for example. right? So we're truly in full control and all this in the conditions we want. So we can model very rare events. We can model specific climate zones. We can model for the impact of El Niño, as Jeremy mentioned before. Right? So, And um, we can actually do all that and take all the data points that we need to feed our models to, to then do magic with it, essentially.
0: Amazing. That sounds really exciting. So these smart growth chambers, they're garage-sized and they allow... They, I, I think um, there's a, uh, a futurist named Michio Kaku. He's written a number of books and hosted TV shows. Uh, one of his tenets of being a futurist is that the future is already here it just isn't Mm -hmm. evenly distributed and so what you're describing there with a smart growth chamber this is you know you might have a few dozen of these garage sized environments but this is a vision of the future at scale this is what farming is going to be like all around the world in our lifetimes really exciting So I posted that I would be hosting all three of you on this show, and we got some great audience questions. I'm going to start with our regular listener, Matthias Baudino. He uh, actually frequently has questions for our guests. Uh, He's a BI analyst at a company called Brain Technology. Um, And he says that in general, he loves these kinds of episodes where we can grasp great practical uses of data science. And his first question is he wants to know what it's like to work with the amazing, with the amazing Serge Macisse. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, he says, jokes aside, um, what role would uh, data science and machine learning play in the face of uh, global warming in particular? So um, do you say simulate crops in the worst conditions and how we could potentially shield crops um, as climate conditions worsen in the future?
2: um yeah and this is this is an active topic of uh, work for us as well uh, so you know spot on fantastic question i think this will affect Im- or you know manifest in probably two or three different ways um the first is through uh, helping discover new products through the r&d uh, you know work like uh, thomas spoke about um products that are able to withstand the climate change. You know just to give you an example, uh, we have uh, one of our corn varieties, artesian corn, um, is uh, is able to convert whatever moisture available uh, into yield more effectively. So you know it brings a great amount of drought tolerance. The discovery of artesian corn has gone through, Uh, you know, in our labs, when we analyze tons and tons of data identifying which genetic traits and which varieties respond to, you know, the drought conditions and so on, ultimately allowed us to bring this product to market. Now, a lot of data science and innovation that went in, it may not uh, be applied, you know, through a computer. It's actually applied through the genetics that are present in this variety. the second scenario is when technology directly comes becomes helpful to the farmer. Uh, for instance, we have uh, one of our digital products is uh, AgriClim that allows uh, uh, a farmer to mitigate the risk of adverse weather conditions. Um, it's a fintech solution. It allows a farmer to, you know, behind the scenes, AgriClim creates models predicting what the weather is likely to. Going to be for the season, and it allows a farmer to you know um, get a bit of mitigation in case the weather pans out. Let's say uh, has the extreme heat or drought conditions and so on. Right. So these are examples where the 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 growers are directly interacting with technology and data and the data science either in making that prediction of weather weather changes or dealing with the impact of weather changes. But yeah, maybe Jeremy Thomas, any builds from you? Probably pick yeah. up on on
3: Matthias' point about the amazing Sarish, right? Because <laughs> this is this is very very close to my heart. I mean, not just Sarish, but actually people around us, right? It's such a pleasure to work with such a smart bunch at scale, right? And also that that diversity. Uh, I mean, I lead IT for R and D, right? But you would expect this this bunch of IT nerds, but actually. This team consists of biologists, chemists, data scientists and all kinds of IT professionals, right? And then we're working with all the PhD chemists, biologists, soil scientists, etymologists, you call it, you name it, right? So it's such a great group to be with. It's it's just fun. I mean, with I'm with with you, Jeremy, right? On on this th- pitch for like this this is the place to enjoy for an IT professional. For for me, it is. I got stuck here, right? I've been here for twelve years, and I never thought I would stay for that long. And
1: I'm enjoying the ride. Yeah, John, I, I just wanted to build on um, his question around the science side. You know, as we talk about climate change and that nature happening, right? CO2 levels are supposed to rise. Well, actually, the, the cool thing about modeling is. Plants benefit from CO2. Um, the, actually, uh, the, there, is a, there is a good side of this whole thing. Uh, oh, whether you, whoa, whether you want to be, I had whether,
0: never made that connection. Whoa.
1: Whether people wanted to know this or not, but as CO2 levels rise, yield goes up. You see if plants oh, bring in CO2, goodness. and then they produce sugar and glucose uh, to provide yield. So there is a natural increase in plants uh, in vegetative mass uh, as CO2 levels. Now, there's a whole tons of other things that go wrong, but... Through the science and modeling, we can actually model out the impact uh, of that level in what will drive yield. We can also see what temperature extremes will do. Like what do we need for heat stress? You know, simple things like, hey, if we change the leaf angle from on corn from flat to more upright, what does that do to photosynthetic rate and penetration of light through a canopy? So things like this, we can, you know, artificially manipulate what the outcome will be fast forward in in generational uh, uh, modeling uh, through whole genome type modeling to understand should we, you know, in a a world of of high sunlight, high heat, should we have a canopy upright or open? And what will that do uh, to the whole overall process? And so, yeah, the whole science and ability to leverage this and combine it with agronomic and, and ecological modeling is huge uh, and allows us to play forward in time what are some of these impacts uh, and what they do. So there is a good side of this whole thing. Uh, Yields go up naturally uh, at the end of the day. Wow, that's
0: wild. Yeah, I'd never thought of that. Um, Yeah, so uh, last audience question here for you. I mean, second and last. Um, So this is from somebody who... I actually, I don't know their real name. So they interact with my LinkedIn posts very regularly. They go by initials. So SMM is what they go by. Uh, they're based in Pennsylvania. Um, they have a PhD in cell and developmental biology. Um, but interestingly, this person, it seems <laughs> mm. like this mysterious initial only individual has a LinkedIn account. Uh it it yeah it's it seems like interacting with these super data science posts is a big part of what it's there for uh so like they don't have any followers uh but they often interact with the posts i make and have great questions great points and are always super positive so smm whoever you are <laughs> thank you for all of your support um smm had lots of questions i think we answered a lot of them over the course of the show um their their final question i think is a really great one here so they asked how much do rare events throw things off? So, you guys are working in the real world. You have um, models that uh, depend on historical data for the most part, but rare events happen, particularly, you know, yeah, I guess there is this upside to more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that means uh, greater crop yields. But uh, one of the downsides is that there's a lot more variability in climate systems and weather, and it's difficult to predict, you know, we've never seen these higher CO2 levels before. And so we, we don't, we can't have a perfect model of how that's going to impact, um, agriculture, how it's going to impact the world. So yeah. How do rare events, um, impact
1: the way that you model at Syngenta? I can take a stab at it off the gate here and let the other guys go. Uh, so, you know, Rare events versus uh, trends are are a big difference. And so trend lines are very relatively easy uh, to model out. And I would argue, you know, the CO2 has been a good trend line component that we can can deal with. The rare event problem really happens uh, with the extreme weathers that we've seen. So we've seen massive spikes in heat waves. I know just last week, I think multiple world records were made uh, on total temp, high heats. Uh, both uh, in Persian Gulf and China, and I know our Southwest and the Phoenix market uh, is is really super hot, and we get wind events, uh, derecho events here in the Midwest uh, with extreme winds uh, and brittle snap and, and laying crops down. and so this is the bigger problem I think we see in the the component that it's just you can't forecast it right because they happen so fast. Um, and so that's been the problem and challenge. And so unfortunately, to to kind of start where we or finish where we started, like this law of averages starts to come into play back again because we have to look at, OK, if we're going to get these rare extreme events of 80 mile an hour derecho winds that move across the, the Iowa Plains or Illinois and just lay corn down, what do we need to do to be able to withstand those type of technology or that type of event, right? Is it uh, more robust root systems? Is it better stock strength? Is it plant height? Um, because we don't know when they're going to happen. And so we only have to kind of go back to a law of an average. If those events are going to happen more in the future in interact, mm-hmm. we actually have to go back to, OK, we need to fundamentally maybe change uh, the working system to be able to handle these rare events, because you can't predict them at least yet. Maybe that'll come. Um, and so you, in a sense, where Faro started, for some of these things, we have to go back to an average to, to help mitigate those risks um, and, and deal with them because they are so extreme um, in looking at those. Uh, and so we do look at that, you know, do we need to shorten plants up, make them more robust? Uh, for wind as an example, um, heat tolerance too, is when we know those spikes are going to happen, do we need to improve the overall heat tolerance or drought tolerance? Um, because you know, it's hard to manage extreme, uh, outliers.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Really exciting things to be, uh, tackling is data science problems, really big impact that can be had, uh, through working in agriculture, like at Syngenta, or in a startup or some other agricultural company, but certainly sounds like Syngenta has a lot of great people um, and would be an amazing place to work, an amazing place to be making a big global impact. So wonderful that all three of you, uh, you know, leadership, you know, going up to the highest levels of leadership at the company that you were able to take the time and be on the show and provide such an entertaining and informative episode for our listeners. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests for a book recommendation. So
2: Faraz, maybe uh, we'll start with you. Maybe I'll just pick the book that's that's on my table right now is, is a book by uh, an author that I know. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Drawing Data with Kids. Uh, as a father, you know how does he teach his uh, daughter uh, the importance of data and the analysis? Uh, it's by uh, Gulreis Khan, who's uh, my wife's brother. That's why it's on my desk. Uh, but yeah, I would I would strongly recommend this
1: as a book. Fantastic
2: read.
0: Very cool. All right. And Jeremy?
1: Yeah, mine's uh, pretty easy for me. It's uh, Simon Sinek's Infinite Game. Uh, in that, uh, you know, uh, we often get caught up in winning quarter by quarter in the corporate world. But the reality is food, agricultural feeding the world is an infinite game and an infinite mindset. There, there's no ending to this. Uh, we have to continue to get better. Uh, and I think it's just a great read and, and great mindset uh, as we tackle the problems we're facing.
0: Awesome. And Thomas? Uh, I would go for Louis Fresco
3: with Hamburgers in Paradise. So, <laughs> And it's not just for the title, but also it, it's a very wild ride through the history of agriculture, through the history of food we eat. Right? It's not strictly data science, but it touches into technology as well. And it's just a great read on like, what actually do we eat and how do we, do we produce the food we have on the table today?
0: Nice. It's so cool that all three of you had the book immediately available uh, in your right hand so our YouTube viewers could see visually all of your recommendations. Uh, It's rare that uh, people have the book right on hand that they recommend. And so for all three of you, there's some, the, the probability of that, unless there's, uh, there's, an, uh, there's a latent factor in behind, something to do with people at Syngenta reading a lot of books and always having them on hand um, <laughs> that I didn't have in my model. Um, and I promise it wasn't scripted. <laughs> yeah, my got um, cases
1: right behind me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and yeah, very last question before I let you go is how people can follow you after this episode so many wonderful insights from across the spectrum of data science and agriculture from all three of you. Faraz, where can people follow you after the show?
2: Um, LinkedIn and Twitter. So uh, my profile is uh, linkedin.com slash in slash as Faraz, but we can publish those links.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, We'll have those in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Nice. Um, Uh, So LinkedIn for Faraz, Jeremy.
1: uh, Same thing. LinkedIn and Twitter at Greta out there on the Twitterverse. Nice. And Thomas? Same here, LinkedIn.
3: And more than following me or any of us, please please do follow what happens in agriculture, right? I mean, it's just such a critical topic for the planet, right? Uh, regardless if this is the three of us, others, Sugenta, other places, I mean, agriculture is the thing to be in data science.
0: Very nice. Uh, well said. A great conclusion to you. a wonderful episode. Thanks to all three of you again. And yeah, we'll have to catch up in the future. And see how um, these amazing technologies have disseminated further across the world and how they're making a big impact. Thank you so much. Thanks,
3: John.
2: Thank you, John. Thank you, John.
0: Well, we would a spectacularly fun and inspiring episode. In it, Faroz, Jeremy, and Thomas filled us in on how precision agriculture will increasingly provide plant-level care on highly granular spatio-temporal and genetic terms how computational agronomy automates what agronomists learn in school, for example, on how a plant stands tall, stays disease-free, and bears fruit, and then computational agronomy automates all of this with machine learning. We also talked about how generative chemistry supports the discovery of useful agricultural compounds that might have a structure quite different from what a human would design, how smart growth chambers provide hourly machine vision data in a garage-sized environment that will, in the coming years and decades, increasingly span entire farms, and we talked about how you could make a big social impact in your own data science career by solving agricultural problems, such as through using drones to seed crops automatically. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Faroz, Jeremy, and Thomas's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 705. Alright, thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks of course to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another delicious episode for us today. For enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support this show by checking out our sponsor's links, which are in the show notes, or you could rate or review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. You could like or comment on the episode on YouTube, or you could recommend the show to a friend or colleague whom you think would love it. But most importantly, I hope you just keep listening. If you like, you can subscribe to be sure not to miss any awesome upcoming episodes. All right. Thank you. Cheers. I'm so grateful to have you tuning in, and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.